Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, we've been hearing a lot in the news um, for quite a while now about Afghanistan and about the pullout and about the travesty that's been happening there. And um, yet, for a lot of people, it feels very far away. It feels, I mean, it is... It is, of course, literally far away from America, but it's hard even, particularly if you haven't been uh, in the military, to really get a grasp of what is happening and to really understand war altogether. And so today, um, I would like to uh, introduce you to my guest, Scott Deluzio, who wrote a book, well, first of all, that today's show is called Afghanistan War Vet Reveals What Fighting Taliban Is Really Like. And he has just come out, very, uh, very good timing, Scott, <laughs> just come out with a new book called Surviving Son, an Afghanistan war veteran reveals his nightmare of becoming a gold star brother. Well, welcome to the show, Scott. Did you, have you, how did it happen that this book came out right at this time when Afghanistan is in the headlines? Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me on the show. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the timing, I don't know if it could have been better uh, with all the news going on uh, with Afghanistan in the headlines and, and everything. Um, originally, I was, I was, pretty much finished with the book over the summer and uh, I was originally planning on uh, releasing it around Veterans Day and um, you know it just so happened that all this stuff was going on in the news and I said well I'm, I'm just sitting on, on this book it's, it's pretty much done and so why don't I, I get it out there now um, you know before uh, you know the all the pullout happened and, and uh, you know and Afghanistan maybe uh, drops from the headlines, uh, you know, a couple months from now. And so I, I wanted to, to get it out there and, and get it in front of as many people as possible, not not just from a, you know, financial perspective, but because I, I really do feel like the message that, that is contained in the book is going to be helpful for a lot of people, especially the, the veterans who served over in Afghanistan um, and, and have, have seen combat and, and dealt with the, the stuff going on over there. Well, why don't we, um, I, I know, let me just, say a, a little bit, um, I don't know if you've looked me up before you were on or what, but um, mm -hmm. I am the terrorist therapist, meaning uh, okay. that since 9-11, um, so I just want to tell you that, like, I know, um, you know, I, I connect with what you're doing and saying and so on. Um, mm -hmm. When 9-11 happened, uh, I'm a New Yorker born and bred, and even though I was living in California at the time, um, my heart was still and is still in New York. So when 9-11 happened, I asked myself what I could do to help America and actually people all over the world uh, with my, you know, skills as a psychiatrist and as a news commentator and so on. Um, and I decided to help people cope with the memory of 9-11, which is still affecting us, and mm -hmm. with um, the ongoing threat of terrorism, which is not only still affecting us, but um, now it's going to be a lot worse. So, 
Correct. Yeah. So, um, so I'm particularly interested in, you know, in your book and what you have to say and, and in all of this. So why don't we take it from the top with your story? Um, why, why did a nice guy like you go into a war zone like, uh, like Afghanistan? Well, you know, so before I, I joined the military, so 9-11 happened, I was in college, and, um, you know, I, I really, that really upset me, and, I, and I, I really wanted to be a part of whatever was going to happen at the time. I didn't really know if it was going to be, you know, this big military push or, you know, what whatever was going to happen, but I, I think, uh, like a lot of other Americans, we we kind of were enraged at that day and, and everything that happened. And, um, you know, ultimately I decided to stay in college and finish my degree. But um, by the time, uh, a couple of years after I, I got out of uh, college, by the time that came around, I, I heard a report on the news that said that the Army was struggling to meet its recruiting numbers uh, for, for whatever, uh, you know, the, those numbers happened to be. And that sort of got under my skin. It got me kind of mad. And so I... I said, looked in the mirror, I had a good, good, hard look at myself, and I said, well, I'm young enough, and I'm, I'm fit, I'm able-bodied, you know, why don't I do something? You know, I'm so mad at everyone else for not joining the, the military, why don't I go and do it? And so, so I did. So I went down uh-huh. to a recruiter and signed up, and, um, you know, I, I make it sound so easy, like you just go to the recruiter and sign a piece of paper and boom, it's done, but, um, you know, it, it, I didn't really need to put much more thought into it than that. You know, it was really just... Um, I, I knew I, my country needed the the bodies and the support and the fighters uh, to go over there. At that time, the, the war was already ongoing, and and I said, you know what? If if my country needs me, then I I'm going to sign up and I'm going to do it. Um, and um, you know, fast forward a few years, uh, I was I, I actually signed up in the Connecticut Army National Guard, um, and. Uh, that that unit got uh, deployed um, right around the time that I I enlisted, and then they got deployed again in two thousand late two thousand nine early uh, two thousand ten, um, and so we we were in Afghanistan in two thousand ten, and uh, so that's kind of the, the story of how I wound up uh, in in Afghanistan. Well, um, let me just ask you a couple of questions. So. Uh, sure. What were you studying in college? What did you plan to do after college? Yeah, so um, kind of kind of strange uh, turn of events. So I uh, studied accounting in in college, and um, I wound up as an infantryman in the army. So they both have nothing to do with each other. You know, complete polar opposites. But um, but I knew that the the country needed uh, the ground troops, the, the people who were fighting the war. They, they didn't need someone in finance, you know, processing the paychecks and, you know, all those kind of things um, as, as much as they needed the, the people who um, who were fighting the war. And, and not, not to slight anyone who was in finance or who was doing any of that, that kind of stuff, um, because that's an important <laughs> job as well. But, but I, I knew... I knew that I, I had other skills to offer as as well, and I you know being a young and fit uh, person, um, I, I I knew that that was something that I was able to do. So I I wanted to to sign up to fight. Um, you know, my my brother uh-huh. had had previously enlisted uh, about um, uh, about a year earlier, a year before I did, and he also went uh, into the infantry, and so I knew a lot of. 
the, the process that he went through and um and knowing him i would not have lived down uh doing anything other than infantry you know the the harder job um you know unless unless i went to something else like you know something a little bit more uh advanced like a uh, special forces or something like that but um he wouldn't have let me live it down if i if i didn't do the okay. same kind of uh job as him so <laughs> uh-huh. now um did your what did your parents have to say about this now what what um, was there something, I mean, there's always, what did your father, uh, did he, was he in the military when he was younger? No, so he grew up uh, you know, around the Vietnam era, um, and he uh, just missed the, the cutoff for, for the draft, uh, for being drafted, I should say. Um, so he was about 17 when they ended the draft, and and then he just never, he never uh, signed up for the military after that. Um, and I, I think seeing what had happened over in Vietnam and seeing the, you know, the horrors and hearing all the stories and seeing stuff on the news, it, it was enough to maybe, uh, you know, keep him from, from wanting to, to join the military. But, um, you know, as far as, you know, w- what my parents thought, um, you know, we were brought up as extremely, in an extremely patriotic family and we we grew up. We have videos of my brother and I uh, singing the national anthem and holding an American flag and and stuff when we were we were young. Before we could even really form the words and like get it out correctly, so it was kind of we fumbled our way through it, but it was still cute nonetheless. Um, but you know, so we we grew up patriotic. Uh, during Desert Storm, we went up to an air base uh, to greet the troops back who were coming back from overseas. Um, you know, at the end of that that war um you know we we did all that kind of stuff and and it was just something that was you know inside of me that said you know what if my country needs me i'm i'm there and i'm i'm going to be there to to do that so um that's something that my parents had instilled in both my brother and i from a very young age and uh so we we saw that our country needed needed us and so we didn't even hesitate to to sign up um and and that that was um you know, all all because of my my parents, I believe. Uh huh. So, what do you think? Before we get to your story, just let me do a little side side trip here. What do you think about? Um, uh, you know, when I grew up, we were we said the Pledge of Allegiance every day to and to the flag and sang uh, some patriotic song or another. And uh, right. my grandparents' home, uh, country home, we had a flag that was up all the time. What do you think about um, what's going on today in school? Well, you know, I'm not an education expert, so I, I you know, I'm not going to talk necessarily about what what's happening in the schools and and we. Well, I mean, uh, as far as children, not children teaching, as well, so. Well, I mean, as far not, as not teaching, teaching patriotism. That, well, you know, I, yes, I think that's know, not, something that that's that's done at the, at the home level. Um, you know, I think, you know, parents have a responsibility to, to instill that, those values in their children. And if they're waiting yes. for somebody else to instill those values on, on their kids, then, um, you know, they're missing an opportunity, you know, where they could be talking about things at the dinner table and, and bringing up those, those patriotic, uh, you know, uh, values uh, to their kids at the dinner table. Yes, I, I agree with that. I just also think it should be still in schools, um, you know, mm-hmm. because because kids are not growing up with as much patriotism um, these days. In fact, they're being taught the opposite. But let's get back to you and your story. Um, sure. So take us to, so, okay, so we were, so there you were. Uh, you had just signed up, 
And I guess, mm-hmm. well, what was it like when you went over there? Was it, were you prepared in any way for the nitty gritty of it? I mean, you know, what it really meant to be on the, in the infantry, on the front lines? Yeah, we did a lot of training uh, before we before we left. And and for anyone who's listening who's not familiar with the the National Guard, National Guard trains one week in a month and two weeks a year. So typically, we don't get as much training as as the active duty soldiers who are you know constantly their their full time job is is as a soldier and they're always training like that. But um, for several months before our uh, before we actually left for Afghanistan, we were we were doing all sorts of different training, uh, you know, uh, shooting and, and movements and, and all sorts of different things, medical training and, and things like that. So we had a lot of, lot of training. Um, and, and on top of that, we also had soldiers who were, um, uh, they carried their civilian jobs with them into Afghanistan. So we had some people who were mechanics in the civilian world, and, and so they were able to help when, when something broke down on a truck, for example, or, or something like that. So, um, you know, we were able to utilize some of those skills, which um, which proved very valuable while we were over there, um, so that way we didn't have to wait for an, a mechanic or something, for example, to come from some other base uh-huh. to come and fix a truck or, or whatever. So, um, you know, so that part I wasn't really prepared for. I, I didn't know that, that we had that much skill set in our unit. Um, you know, we had so many different people from so many different backgrounds and that was, that was kind of, uh, unique. But when, when we actually got to Afghanistan, um, you know, when I, when I first stepped off the helicopter, uh, at Bagram, uh, the, the main air base there in, in Afghanistan near, near Kabul, um, Bagram is basically like a big city, and I thought to myself, "Well, if this is what Afghanistan's going to be like, it's not going to be all that bad." And then uh, we took another helicopter to another base, uh, Jalalabad, which was a little bit smaller and not quite as, as much of a city feel. And and so I, I said, "Okay, well, this still isn't so bad, but um, you know, it's getting a little bit more rustic." And then we took a third flight over to our <laughs> our actual base where we we stayed, and uh, that was a forward operating base, kind of out um, uh, on the, the Pakistani border. It was only about a mile and a half, two miles from from the border, and uh, that was a very remote uh, base. And and so when we stepped off of the helicopter that night, um, it, it was a, a little bit of a, a hairy situation where we we didn't really know exactly where we were, and, and uh, you know we knew we were at the base we were supposed to be at, but as we we're walking off the helicopter, it, it almost felt like we were just being left off in the middle of nowhere, and then we walked out because there's no lights on. It's not like a big city or anything like that. Um, and then we walked out, and we, we found the gate, and we walked in, and um, you know, it, it was uh, a little bit hectic there at first, but, but we settled into a routine uh, on the base, and we, we worked our, our job, and we, we did our job well and uh, you know, to the best of our abilities, um, and, and uh, we, I think we did a lot of good while we were over there. Well, what, were, what was your job? Yeah, so uh, when we were there, so like I said, we were stationed near the border, in, in uh, the Pakistani border, and our main job was to secure that border, uh, that border crossing entryway, um, because about 80% of the NATO supplies that, that were shipped to Afghanistan were done so uh, by boat, and Afghanistan being a landlocked country um, was uh, not accessible by boat, so the closest port was in Pakistan, and so the cargo containers would come off the ships and they'd truck them into Afghanistan. And, and we were there to make sure that um, the the stuff had safe passage into Afghanistan um, and then go on its way to wherever it needed to go. Um, 
And so that that was our our primary job was just a border security, um, and and almost as a show of force to the the Pakistanis who would sometimes shut down the border. But when we when we happened to be there at the border, they they didn't tend to do that quite as much. So uh, not that we were you know planning any kind of conflict with with Pakistan or anything, but um, it just seemed like when we were there, they they wouldn't shut down the border uh, quite as often. So mm-hmm. um, so we 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 did that, and, and we allowed our supplies to come in as they needed to. And um, you know, get get to where they needed to go to the the soldiers and the everyone else who were relying on them to to come in. Um, but we also had um, other missions that we would we'd go off base, you know, to uh, you know further out areas, um, and uh, sometimes we we take helicopters out to land in these remote villages that were so far away from anything that um, you know you don't even necessarily find them on a map. Um, you, you know, when you when you look at the map that. They're not labeled really. They're just mountainous terrain and, and stuff like that around it. Um, and so we would we would go to these places and we'd, we'd go into villages looking for uh, Taliban and, and other um, you know terrorist uh, activity going on in those, those villages. So um, so that was kind of the, the 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 nuts and bolts of what we were doing over there. Okay. Well, this is uh, I hear the music. We need to take a break, and this is a good place to to stop. And when we come back, we will continue um, with Scott on his journey in Afghanistan. Uh, His book is called Surviving Son, an Afghanistan war veteran reveals his nightmare of becoming a gold star brother, and we will be getting to that next. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, 
Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We are talking today about Afghanistan war vet reveals what fighting Taliban is really like. We're talking to Scott Deluzio. He is the author of Surviving Son, an Afghanistan war veteran reveals his nightmare of becoming a gold star brother. And um, I, I'm not sure how close we are to that part, but what, what date um, did you arrive in Afghanistan? Yeah, so I arrived in Afghanistan early February. I forget the exact date off the top of my head, but it was early February of 2010 uh, when we when we got there, okay. when we first landed in, in Bagram, yeah. Okay, and so so how long... Well, why don't you take us from where, where you were being dropped off in the, the blackness, you know, of what a, a desert, middle of, de- of the desert at night... Uh, one can only imagine. Uh, were you were you scared? I mean, you didn't know where the Taliban were at that point. Yeah, no, exactly. So, so when we when we first stepped off the helicopter uh, at our at our base, our our forward operating base, where we were were stationed for the majority of the deployment, um, it was pretty scary because I, like you said, I didn't know. Uh, where the enemy might be, if they were in that area, if we were going to be stepping off the helicopter into gunfire, I, I, I didn't know. And, and I don't think any of us really had any idea at that point because it was uh, very pitch black. Uh, like I said earlier, there was no lights on on, on the fob uh, where we were. Every, everything was, was off for the, the purposes of um, it, so that the, the enemy couldn't see into the base at night, so that they couldn't, you know, tell where where all the buildings were and stuff, so that they they could direct fire uh-huh. and stuff. So, um, so we walked off into pitch black, and, and it was complete darkness. Um, walking out there, and we we got in, onto the base, and, and finally got into the, the the inner walls of the base, and where it was a safe area. But but your heart was still pumping at that point. <laughs> you could feel it. You know, you, you knew that, that uh-huh. you were, you just went went and did something that was a little bit. Uh, a little bit scary. Um, fortunately, we we didn't take any fire that at that time at that night, um, and so so that was uh, that was good. It was a, a nice way to ease into the, the situation that we were uh, we were getting ourselves into over there yeah. in Afghanistan. But um, but then life on our on our base was uh, it, it was hard work because. We we had long hours, uh, long days of of our our patrols that we would do and and, and the other work that we were we were doing, um, and and for anyone who hasn't been over there, uh, the area that we were in in Afghanistan gets incredibly hot. Um, it it was easily over 120 degrees for most days uh, that that we were over there. Um, you know, not wow. coming the obviously the, the cooler months in like February, but for during during the late spring and, and summer months, it, it was it was easily over 120 degrees. Um, and at night, it maybe would drop to uh, maybe 100 degrees, you know, maybe 90s if you're lucky. Um, and so mm. so we were constantly working outside. It wasn't like we had, uh, you know, air-conditioned uh, buildings to go into that we, we were working out of. Um, you know, we, we were constantly working outside and in the heat and it was, it was hard, um, you know, and, and it wasn't just the heat. It was the fact that we were wearing, uh, you know, our full uniform with our body armor or, or helmets and uh, weapons and everything else that we had to carry along with us. So wow. it was the, the added weight on top of the, 
the heat that we had to deal with as well. So, so uh-huh. it was, it was a, a, a tough job to do. Um, you know, even if it was just, you know, kind of walking around with all that, that weight and equipment and everything like that, it, it still was a very tough thing to do. So when was the, so you arrived in February, when was the first time that you encountered uh, the enemy? Well, you know, so the, the enemy over there is hard to describe um, because when you think of typical traditional wars, you have one, one enemy wearing, or one side of the, the, the fight wearing one uniform, the other side of the fight wearing another uniform, and it's very easy to identify who the enemy is. And, mm. you know, so think back to World War II. You, you had German uh, soldiers in a German uniform. You had American soldiers in American uniforms. And it was really easy to say, okay, this is the Americans. Th- these are the Germans. And, and so we knew, uh-huh. uh, you know, who is who. But over there in Afghanistan, the, the enemy that we were encountering, uh, they all dressed the same as any ordinary civilian uh, that was over there. And they blended in very well with that civilian population. Mm. Um, they wore the same mm. same clothing and the and and everything, and and sometimes they would even uh, recruit other uh, people. Um, and I say recruit kind of loosely um, because what they would do is they would they would sometimes threaten uh, people and their families and say, if you don't go and you know set this bomb off, I'm, we'll kill your family. And so mm. sometimes it really wasn't uh, you know someone who wanted to do us any harm. But they they were doing stuff because they were trying to protect their family, and so you know, uh-huh. you know who the enemy was was a very subjective thing. It really was, you know, it, you really couldn't tell who the enemy was until they started shooting or until they started, uh, you know, blowing things up or, or whatever, or, you know, near you, and and so it was very hard to tell uh, where where the enemy was. You know, we did we did take. Uh, have some attacks on our base where um, we we had a uh, entry control point where we had had people with uh, machine guns like our our soldiers with machine guns uh, protecting the the entryway to our base, and uh, th- there were some snipers that tried taking some shots at, at them and um, and so we had had some of that going on and um, you know and then even while we were working at the border uh, near near the Pakistani border. Um, there was one situation where, where there was a, a little child. He was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 11 years old or so. And he popped up from the back of a truck and he pointed uh, what looked like to me a weapon at uh, some of our soldiers. And so uh, at the time, I, I was like the only person who was in any kind of position to see what was happening because he was higher up. It was kind of like dump truck height. Uh, you know, if you, if you think about a dump truck, he was kind of on top of one of those. Um, uh-huh. And... And so I, I drew my weapon on him, and I, I was about to shoot because I, obviously I don't want anything bad to happen to any of my guys. Um, and yeah. just before I did, I realized what he was holding was just a, like a wooden toy, like a, a piece of wood that was carved to, to be shaped huh. like a rifle. And so mm-hmm. I very came very close to killing a child who, like I was saying before, like this this child didn't come up with this idea on his own to go and draw a weapon on uh, on American soldiers, but yeah. Someone may have told him, "Hey, go do this as a test to see what will happen." Um, you know, and, uh-huh. and so they just gave him a, a piece of wood that looked like a rifle, and and said, "Hey, go go do this, and, and let's see what see what the Americans do uh, in response to this." And and if he dies, yeah, oh well, you know, then you die. But <laughs> you know, um, it yeah. is what it is. So so that I mean, 
it was a very hard situation because they were trying to provoke they were trying to provoke you to start shooting right because then they'd have the excuse to shoot yeah Mm -hmm. exactly and they they would and and they would also have uh the um the appearance of us being these terrible people who would go out and kill children and they would be able to use that to their for the propaganda for their benefit to uh kind of rally rally the troops if you will on their end to get more people uh aligned with their cause Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so fortunately, I didn't shoot, shoot that <laughs> child. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so uh, you know, take- uh, you know, and as, as we were going through, um, you know, the the deployment, different things like that would 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 pop up, and we would have. Um, you know, like small little uh, skirmishes where, you know, like that, that attack on our base, like I was saying, we'd have, have things like that. But then we'd also have other other things that we would do to kind of help out the local locals, uh, people who lived in the area, um, you know, where, uh, for example, one uh, one time a group of people came to us and said uh, that they were hurting their, their uh, cows and um, their cows got trapped in a flash flood and there's like this small island that, that these cows were stuck on and the water was rushing by and we, they asked us to come out and try to help them uh, rescue their cows. And, and so we, we went out to see what we could do and, and help them out over there. Um, again, that, that was a, another one of those situations where you didn't really know what the situation was that you're walking into um, where we very uh-huh. easily could have been walking into an ambush um, they could have been completely lying about the cows, or or they just put the cows right. there as a, a decoy, and and we could have very easily gotten ambushed. But we went out and we did what we could. We we set up security so that way we had a, a safe area to operate, and we we did our best to try to help the, the people with with their cows. Um, you know, uh, ultimately at the end of the day, the water was too deep and moving too fast for us to really do anything uh, for them with the equipment that we had. So. Um, ultimately, we, we just kind of told them that you, you kind of have to just sit tight and wait for the water to recede. Um, but, but, you know, we had a lot of uh, calls from uh, the local villages and, and things where we would go out and try to, try to help them in one way or another. And so, um, but each one of those calls, you know, we, all, we treated all of them as, as if it could have been set up for an ambush, you know. And so while, yeah. yes, we want to go and, and do the best that we can and help people as, as much as we could, we never really knew when when something might happen where we might we might get attacked. Um, so we, we always were staying vigilant and keeping our uh, head on a swivel and, and making sure that we knew uh, knew what was going on around us and not, not just get uh, lackadaisical with with our missions and 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 just treat uh-huh. everything like it was just another routine day because you n- you never knew and so um, you know even when uh, you know you're you're doing the the same mission uh, going to the same locations you know over and over again um, from one day to the next it could be a completely different situation so yes. um, so we, yes. we have to treat it that way you know um, and then. Uh, later on in our, our deployment, we, we started going further out from, from our base where we were taking helicopters out to, to these remote villages, I, I think I mentioned earlier. Um, and that, that's where, where things where we really started, uh, you know, having more uh, of a combat role where we were in, involved more in the, the combat operations, um, where we were going door to door, clearing houses and making sure that, uh, you know, the, the enemy was not hiding out in these villages. Um, and so we, we would do that, um, you know, go 
we worked closely with the Afghan National Army, and uh, we we went out together with them, um, and they would they would clear some some of the houses. We would we would do some of the work with them, and um, but that was another situation where again you don't know who the enemy actually is because. Uh, just because they're wearing an Afghan uh, army uniform doesn't necessarily mean that they won't turn their weapon on mm. you. Um, and for the yeah. same reason that, that we had with, with any of those civilians. You know, if, if the Taliban came and, and kidnapped their family and said, hey, if you don't go and kill a bunch of uh, American soldiers, we're going to kill your family. Um, you know, and yeah. so they may have had the best intentions when they signed up for the Afghan army, but they very easily could have turned around and... and uh, and attacked us as well uh, for those same reasons. So it was a very, uh, you know, hectic situation where, where we, we didn't really know who we could trust. And, and we had to trust the Afghans, uh, the, the army soldiers anyways, to some extent, um, because, you know, they had, they had weapons and they were walking around with us and we kind of had to trust them with that. And we couldn't take away their weapons, obviously, if they're going to, we're going to ask mm. them to go clear a building. But, but at the same time, we were keeping a close eye on them and making sure that they weren't, uh, you know, acting out of the ordinary and, and acting like they're maybe going to come and, and attack us or anything like that. So, so it was yeah, it was yeah. a difficult difficult job to to do. Um, you know, by by going and uh, working alongside of them. Um, but so, when was the first time, or what was it like the first time that you actually confronted? Um, real Taliban or real enemies, uh, whether they were the right. Taliban themselves or these people they co-opted. Um, what was that like? What was that circumstance? Yeah, so for me, the very first time that I uh, fired my weapon uh, against you know, any, any enemy uh, over there was actually the, the same day that my brother was killed, um, that he was killed in action. So um, just kind of rewind a little bit and go back to earlier that day. That was one of those missions where we, we flew out from a, a base and we landed in some remote village. And uh, we, we walked down, uh, into, down the mountain into, into this village, and, and we spent most of the day clearing, uh, clearing the village and, and clearing the, the different buildings, looking for uh, Afghan army uniforms that were stolen by the Taliban, uh, looking for weapons that the Taliban might use, any, <clears throat> any uh, explosives, uh, rifles, things of that nature. Um, and we did find some of that stuff, and so we we dis- disposed of it. We had uh, you know some explosives that we used to to blow up the the bigger things like like the guns and and things like that. And we burned all the Afghan army uniforms that we found so that they couldn't end up falling into the wrong hands again. Um, but then uh, about midway through that day, um, a I got a call on the radio, and they they asked me to um, take my squad and go. Uh, secure a landing area for a helicopter. And so I did. And, and when the helicopter landed, uh, a, an American general got off and he was coming out to see what we were doing in the village and how, how the operation was going and everything like that. And so, um, so I, I got to talk with him for a few minutes while we were waiting for some of the officers to come in and uh, join him. And while I was, I was standing there talking to him, he got a call on the radio that informed him that there were some American soldiers who were killed in action. Um, and he didn't have any further details other than that, but it was just kind of kind of a you know strange thing to be hearing over the radio, and and so I you know obviously my heart went out to the, whoever those those soldiers were at the time, and uh, you know I felt bad about it, but I also had my own mission to do, and so I didn't give it too much thought. 
Um, and then a little bit later, I, I got a call on the radio saying that the commander of our unit was looking for me specifically. And if you know anything about the military, um, there's there's a chain of command, and the 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 top guy, the the commanding officer, is not necessarily going to be uh, directly looking for uh, one of the lower ranking guys. I was a, a sergeant at the time, and so I wasn't the lowest ranking uh, person in, in the unit. But I wasn't. I also wasn't the highest. You know, it's not. It wasn't usual that he would come looking directly for me. And so I started thinking to myself, like, oh, God, what, what, what did I do wrong? What did, did any of my guys do something wrong? Did they lose something? Whatever. And I, it, my head was going, racing a mile a minute trying to figure out what was going on. And, uh, you know, so eventually I, I linked up with the, the commanding officer, and he, he told me to uh, take a knee and, and just uh, take my helmet off, which I, I thought was very strange because no one ever tells you to take your helmet off when you're, you're outside uh, the base and, and you're in a potentially hostile area. And uh, uh-huh. so he said, yeah, just take a knee and, and, uh, and I, I have something to tell you. And, and he said, y- your brother's unit was, uh, was ambushed and he got hit. And so immediately my mind started racing towards Okay, so he he's injured. He probably needs like blood, or you know, if he needs an organ transfer or something like that. Like if if I yeah, have it and he needs it, like I'm my, I'm going through the logistics of how can I get to him and and get him yeah. what he needs so I can help him, right? As as any big brother would do, and uh, and then the commanding officer said, "No, I don't think you understood. Uh, he was killed. He was killed in action." And so mm-hmm. naturally, I, I I just broke down and. and and, uh, you know, I was just a, a complete mess. Um, but with, within about 20 minutes after learning of my brother's death, our, our own unit started getting attacked. Um, yeah, and so yeah. we, we started, we started getting, getting, uh, shot at by, by rifles and, and RPGs, uh, rocket propelled grenades and, and everything. And, and it was just, you know, started uh, breaking out all around us. So I had to immediately put my grief aside, the grieving uh, part of me aside and, and go switch back into army mode and go and take care of the guys who I was in charge of. I had had about 10 or so guys who I was in charge of at that point. And it, it was, it was hard for me, you know, obviously, you know, in a grieving state, just that, that fresh and that raw, uh, yes, of, yeah. you know, that news just, just hitting you. Um, I, I had to put all that aside. And so that, that turned in me within me, it turned into pure anger. I was just angry at everyone around me. I was angry, especially at the Afghan people who were around me, um, for, in, in my mind that they weren't able to handle their own country and take care of their own affairs uh-huh. and that, and that it, it required us to, to come to that country and, and take care of it for them. And then ultimately, uh, wind up getting good people like my brother killed. And, and so yeah. it, it was just, just pure anger and, and hatred and resentment uh, for people who, either I didn't even really know or that I knew and they, I knew that they were good people. Like some of our interpreters we, we had were, were really good people and they're, and I, but I was still angry at them. Um, and, and that, that to me, I hate to, I hate to interrupt you in the middle of right, yeah. right at this point, but uh, we have to take a break. So I guess we'll leave people oh, yeah, on, no a, on a cliffhanger here. Sure. And uh, we will be right back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's couch. My guest is Scott Deluzio and we will be right back. Are you
Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I want to get right back to my guest, Scott Deluzio. Um, He is the author of a book called Surviving Son, an Afghanistan war veteran reveals his nightmare of becoming a gold star brother. And we were pretty much at that point. You know, um, you probably, so, so this turned out to be, when, when you heard of, when you were told, excuse me, when you were told of your brother's death, um, that just happened to be the, the first time that you were called upon um, to, to shoot the enemy? Did I get that right? Yeah, so, uh, you know, un- unfortunately, it just co- happened to coincide where it, that was the same day, um, you know, where my brother was killed, and then that was the first time that I actually had to fire my my weapon, um, you know, at, at anybody. Um, fortunately for us, the, the deployment was relatively peaceful. I mean, we did have, a, a, you know, a few small skirmishes, but I, I never actually fired my weapon, um, you know, at, at anyone prior to that day. Um, but but like I was saying before, um, you know, when when I got to that point where where I did end up firing my weapon, um, it was it was almost out of out of just pure anger and hatred uh, toward towards the people, um, you know, and and it was it was uh, you know just a very hard thing to process because I I found out about my brother just you know twenty or so minutes earlier and. You know, then I had to set that grief aside, and and it was for me, anyways. It it was not an easy thing to do, um, and so I, I don't know why exactly I did it, but I I just turned all of that grief into hatred and anger towards 
uh, the, the people who were attacking us. And, and quite frankly, a lot of the people of, of Afghanistan, um, you know, like I said before, uh, I, I just, I, I felt like they should be the ones who were taking care of their country and that they should be the ones who were fighting and dying for their, their country and not good people like my brother. Um, you know, so, yeah. so we, we, we had that, that engagement. And then uh, the commanding officer said that, that he, he recognized that I, I was not really in any uh, uh, condition to continue uh, staying out there on that mission. And so he wanted me to, to, get off of that mountaintop and, and go on, on a helicopter on my way back home. And so, um, you know, about an hour, hour and a half or so, time kind of is a little fuzzy and they, they, it gets blurry over, over time, uh, you know, how, how long things were. But uh, about an hour, hour and a half or so after uh, that, that engagement, um, a helicopter landed and, and took me and, and a couple other soldiers uh, off the mountain uh, back to Bagram Air Base, and um, from there, uh, that that was basically the start of my journey home um, to to come back home from from Afghanistan. And um, so, the following morning, I was a part of a what's called a ramp ceremony, where uh, they they bring the fallen soldiers um, onto a uh, military cargo plane's ramp and bring them up into the, the cargo plane. And they they hold the ceremony, which I I equate to basically like a, a wake, like a, a Catholic uh, wake, wake where you would go and pay your respects. And and there are people from from all over, civilian contractors, um, their military high-ranking military officials, people from uh, other foreign countries. They're like Polish soldiers and, and things like that. They all came to pay their respects to to my brother. Um, and you know, and the other uh, soldier, his name was uh, Tristan Southworth, uh, who who were killed that day, and they came to pay their respects. And you know, it's a unique situation because not very many uh, soldiers are uh, able to be there for that ramp ceremony for uh, you know their own blood relative. Um, you know, when when that uh-huh. type of thing happens, and so um, and, and to the best of my knowledge, and I've done a little bit of research on this, and I I think I'm correct, but I think I'm the only uh, my brother and I are the only uh, set of siblings who uh, where one of them was killed uh, overseas in in Afghanistan uh, while they both were deployed to Afghanistan at the same time. I know there are plenty other uh, uh, siblings who were deployed at the same time. That's not unique, but but in the you know uh, situation where. Um, where one of them dies while the other one is is in the same country, um, you know, in Afghanistan. Uh-huh. It, I think that that it is a uh, unique situation, and so um, uh-huh. you know, I was I was able to be there for that ceremony, and uh, I actually flew out of Afghanistan on the same plane that my brother was loaded onto. Um, you know, they uh-huh. they, uh, they saved the seat for me. Um, I don't know if someone got bumped off of that flight because it was a pretty full flight, but uh, they they uh, had me go out on that that flight, uh, and that flight went to Kuwait. And when we got to Kuwait, I uh, I, I got off the plane. Uh, they they brought uh, my brother and and the other soldier uh, off the plane, and uh, I was able to to. Uh, give the final salute uh, to him, uh, you know, coming off that plane. That was pretty meaningful for uh-huh. me because um, I knew at that point I was going to have to leave him there in Kuwait. Like I couldn't continue the journey with him. Uh, they, they weren't going to allow me to continue that journey. 
uh, with him. And so I knew that I was going to be going on uh, next to Germany and then, then eventually to the United States uh, on my own. Um, and not, I, I say on my own, I felt like I was on my own. I was with a lot of other soldiers, but I didn't know who any of them were. So I felt very lonely at that point. Um, and, and so mm-hmm. it was, it was a hard, uh, hard trip for me, uh, because I, I felt like I had nobody there who understood me and my situation or who I could even talk to. And, and so it was a, a long, very lonely journey, uh, that I was, I was traveling on my own and, yeah. um, and and so so yeah i mean that that's that was the the kind of day in hell for me where where uh you know I, I get this devastating news and then uh then i end up in a firefight and and it it just was not uh not the way i i envisioned any of this to happen um you know uh not not that i envisioned uh losing my brother because that, that was one of those things where uh, you kind of lie to yourself and say, you know, oh, that that only happens to other people, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And and I, and on that day, I feel like I became those other people, and and uh, it it really opened my eyes to the fact that you know bad things can happen to me, to my family, to my loved ones, to to the people around me. Um, and prior to that happening. You know, I, I lived a relatively peaceful life. I didn't have too much to worry about. I didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, grief to go through. You know, I, you know, I've lost elderly relative, uh, relatives and family members, um, but they were uh, they were older, and it was it was sort of expected that you know something like that could happen. But never to someone mm-hmm. as young as my brother. He was 25 at the time, and uh, really? you know, he you, you never you never would expect. Uh, that you wouldn't come home together, that you wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, hang out together and, and have conversations and talk about the war together. You never had those, that expectation, uh, you know, going into it. And I think if I did expect that something bad would, was going to happen to him, I probably would have shot him in the foot or something just so he didn't have to go. But, um, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. ultimately, you know, bad things do, do happen. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, they do happen to good people. And as was the case with my brother. I mean, you had a double trauma. Um, I know you talk about how you had PTSD when when you got home, but it's a double trauma, Mm -hmm. not the normal PTSD from being in a war zone like Afghanistan, but um, having survivor guilt where you were spared and your brother died. And in fact, you you must, do you ask yourself like, um, whether you would have died if he hadn't died and you hadn't had the chance to go home because he died? Do you ever, you know, play that in your mind? You know, I, I played all sorts of scenarios out in my mind, and I, I felt like, you know, I as the bigger brother, I felt like I let him down, and I felt like I should have been there to protect him. And I, I run through all the, the decisions that I made and all the things that I did that that. I could have done differently to make it so that he would still be here. You know, I think if I had joined the unit that he was in instead of the unit that I was in, then maybe I would have been with him and, and he would still be alive because maybe there would have been something I could have done for him. You know, I, I would have maybe been looking out for him. Uh, you know, not, not to say that the guys who were with him weren't looking out for him, but, but there's just something different about, a, you know, a brother being there and looking out uh, for, for someone well, versus, uh, you know, well, a good friend. But you know. Yeah, yes, yes. But do they even allow um, siblings to be in the same unit? 
Isn't that a no-no? Yes, they do. Because they, you're, they do. No, they, they, actually, they actually do, yeah. And our, our company actually had uh, several sets of, of brothers in the same, uh, same company. And I, I believe my brothers did it as well. And um, typically what, what happens is you might serve in the same unit, but you don't necessarily all go out on the same mission at the same time. So that uh-huh. way if something uh-huh. bad happens and, and the entire mission gets wiped out, uh, by by the enemy, um, at least one of the brothers uh, or, or sisters, and in, in whatever the case may be, um, is away from that situation. They're they're safer on a base mm-hmm. away from that situation. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're coming to the end of the show. We have like a minute left, which is so unfortunate because, <laughs> you know, this uh, it, you're telling an amazing story, which is why I guess you wrote the book. Surviving Son, an Afghanistan war veteran, reveals his nightmare of becoming a gold star brother. Um, I also want to mention that you have a podcast um, for called Drive On Podcast um, to help other service men- members. Do you want to mention something about that? Yeah, sure. So um, the, the podcast is there uh, really for helping out other veterans, giving them hope, uh, talking to other to, to veterans who have gone through a uh, some traumatic incident in their their service or or sometime uh, you know in their military career and and talking to them about how they overcame those things um, so that other veterans who might hear those messages might say hey you know what there's some hope for me yet um, you know these people went through something similar to me and and you know what they came through on the other side okay and and maybe there's some hope for me and maybe they can learn how these other people went through those situations. Um, and I also talk to other service providers of, uh, of services to veterans that may not be as well known, um, you know, art therapy and, and things like that, where, where people can, can go to get these, these resources and, and uh, try something new that maybe they hadn't even thought of before. So that way they don't give up hope on themselves. And, uh, you know, we, mm-hmm. we, and we're all familiar with the uh, veteran suicide uh you know, thing going on in, in this country where 22 veterans are killing themselves every day. And that to me just is an unsettling number. And I, I want to do everything that I can to give back and, and help these veterans and, and help them realize that there is still a chance for them and that there is still hope. Um, and so uh, mm-hmm. Drive On Podcast is, is where I talk about those things uh, with um, with those guests and, and hopefully, you know, provide uh, some hope to these veterans. Yes, and this is never has never been more um, urgently needed than today with the pullout. Well, thank you so much, right. Scott Deluzio. Again, that podcast was called Drive On Podcast, and the book was called Surviving Son. Uh, an Afghanistan war, war veteran reveals his nightmare of becoming a, a gold star brother. Well, thank you. You really, uh, your descriptions really brought us onto the field, and um, you have a lot of courage. And I wish more people. <laughs> Uh, felt like you in terms of patriotism. So thank you. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 